Steve McQueen, and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The Towering Inferno. It's out of control. It's coming your way. Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox present Irwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. Steve McQueen. Paul Newman. William Holden. Faye Dunaway. Fred Astaire. Susan Blakely. Richard Chamberlain. Jennifer Jones. O.J. Simpson. Robert Vaughn. And Robert Wagner. The Towering Inferno. Those people are going to die up there. Something's not done. Watch me out of here. So you can stop worrying about me. What about me down there worrying about you? I'll never let you go anywhere without me again. I'll be back with the whole fire department. On the special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome back to the show Mr. Nat Sagaloff. Mr. Sagaloff is a former Hollywood publicist, and he's written quite a few books on the making of notable films and the people behind them. Over the years, he's done such projects as a biography on the life of Arthur Penn. He did one of the first biographies, the first actual biography, on the life of William Friedkin, before Mr. Friedkin did his own autobiography. He's contributed a book on the life of writer Harlan Ellison as well. And several years back, he did a book entitled Final Cuts, The 50 Greatest Films of 50 Directors, which is a terrific book that I can certainly vouch for. All of his books are great. These are just a sampling of some of the books that he's done. Mr. Sagaloff has also written a Hollywood expose entitled Screensaver and a sequel, Screensaver 2. And there's a book that he did several years back called Guarding Gable, which is about an incident in the life of Mr. Clark Gable, the famed actor. We're here to talk to him about his latest book, More Fire, which is a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Towering Inferno, More Fire, the building of the Towering Inferno, the 50th anniversary explosion. This was issued on March 12th. Mr. Sagaloff has a few other books coming down the pike. The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, coming out in July, which is an exploration of all the Exorcist movies in the TV series. And Breaking the Code, which is about Otto Preminger's battle with the Hollywood censors, about the director's attempt to get a production code seal for The Moon is Blue. And in November, he'll contribute another book, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface on the 40th anniversary of Brian De Palma's operatic film and the 91st anniversary of Howard Hawks' original. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our show. Well, thank you. I should say this is my first interview on any of the books that I've got coming out this year. Uh, and so I don't have my sound bites rehearsed, and that means, Adam, you're likely to get the truth until I learn how to how to how to roll back on it. Um, publishers seem to have uh, they seem to go into heat over anniversaries, 25th, 50th, and 40th anniversaries, and that's what's uh, inspiring a couple of my other books. Let me. Where's my phone to turn it off? Okay, this is okay. Sorry, I should have turned off the. This is, I, I have not been busy in 30 years, and all of a sudden, I have everything happening around here. But anyway, uh, The Towering Inferno was my liberation, because I was working for a theater chain in Boston, and not really going anywhere, although it was fun to handle celebrities and go out to the newspapers and learn how to be a, a journalist and everything. 
But when the towering inferno was about to be released, Irwin Allen, who was a very big catch for both 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers, because it took two studios to finance the movie, set up a special publicity unit under a man named David Forbes, who features very big in my book. He's, he was a marketing genius. He still is. In fact, the book is co-dedicated to him, and he's still a friend. And he put a bunch of us together. He hired me away from the theater chain. And at one point, I was told the theater chain threatened to boycott 20th Century Fox films for hiring me away. Uh, they didn't, because not only did The Towering Inferno make a lot of money, but also Young Frankenstein, and so they weren't about to boycott a studio that had those films out. But it shows how cutthroat the movie business could be. And I traveled around the country for a couple of months, the New England part of the country, uh, schlepping some of the stars like uh, Robert Vaughn and Richard Chamberlain and wonderful people, Scott Newman, Paul Newman's son by his first marriage, setting up interviews and things like that, Sterling Sullivan, which is how I met him, and uh, just kept notes. I mean, that's, that's what you do when you're young and you hope that you'll be able to use them someday. And it took 49 years, but I was able to use those notes. And the result is more fire the uh, 50th anniversary of the, the Towering Inferno, a, uh, an explosion. So I'm, I'm happy. And then, of course, Ben Omart of Bear Manor Media consented to print the book. And already we're getting a lot of feedback on the thing. Apparently, people really wanted to read about that movie. They really liked the film. And so I'm, I'm hoping we have a hit. Ben certainly deserves it because he's been very good to me for the past 10 years. The interesting thing in reading your book uh, that comes across is how much of a mystery man that Irwin Allen was. So, so, so little is known of him in his personal life. His professional life is well documented, but, but not so much his personal life. It's, it's absolutely true. Irwin Allen, who was truly a gifted producer and also a writer who I don't think is recognized for his writing. He wrote dozens and dozens of episodes for his series. Uh, a wonderful writer named Mark Cashman, who is known for writing the Star Trek books, These Are the Voyages, but he also did a whole series of books on Erwin um, Allen, such as Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space. And he went through the Erwin Allen archives, which is a privileged thing. I, I sort of get the feeling it's like the reporter going in to see the Walter P. Thatcher Memorial Library in Citizen Kane, because the archives are sequestered and they're private and... and uh, Mark was able to make headway there, um, as did a man named Jeff Bond, who had written a book about the fantasy films of Irwin Allen. And these two writers were extremely helpful to me, and both of them said the same thing. There's nothing about Irwin's personal life. I couldn't even find out the name of his parents. He simply denuded his files of anything that smacked of a personal story. Not that there was any scandal there. He just lived for the movies and for TV. Yeah, he met Sheila Matthews, who was in some of his uh, television programs, and of course he put her in Towering Inferno, playing the mayor's wife. Um, I, I, I don't think it was necessarily um, celibate. I just don't think that he thought it was anybody's business. And frankly, I can't argue with him. He was, he, he loved the circus. Uh, Sterling Sullivan uh, said that about him, and, and you can just use that expression. He loved the circus. He loved show business. He loved movie stars. Um, he loved the pomp. He traveled first class. He did everything exactly as you thought a producer should do it. And that's wonderful if, if you have the hits. And he certainly did. He was keeping 20th Century Fox Television alive with his series and making a fortune. And then they, they started to shortchange him. They wouldn't give him the budget he needed. So he said, well, the hell with you. And he went into features. So he was a, a ring-tailed wonder when it comes to being a producer. And the thing I got to say here before I forget it, when you look at The Poseidon Adventure or you look at The Towering Inferno, his two biggest feature films, it's hard to write about them because there was no scandal, there were no difficulties, uh, well, maybe Faye Dunaway a little bit, but there was nothing else. 
he, he ran such a good ship. There were no injuries because he was a maniac about safety. They all came in on time and on budget. So, in other words, he was a perfect producer, which means it's very hard to write about him. <laughs> but he, uh, he really, really did the job well. Could you tell us a little bit about the controversy surrounding who directed what in The Towering Inferno? I mean, it's credited to Irwin Allen as director of action sequences, and John Gillerman is the main accredited director. There's a little controversy there. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, the truth is the Directors Guild had to not necessarily file a claim, but take uh, action against Irwin, who was claiming that he directed it. And they said, no, no, John Gillerman directed it. Irwin Allen also directed, but John Gillerman is the lead director, and he's the one who got his name in the in the posters and on the trailers. Um, and that's Irwin. Yeah, he was a he was a publicity hog because he thought he had made his name commercial, like Cecil B. DeMille, Alfred Hitchcock, William Castle, and he uh, began to think that he was the one behind all the Irwin Allen films. Incidentally, his name was not Irwin Allen, by the way. We should remember that he invented himself. His name was Irwin Grinovit, and he was born in New York. And he maybe his middle name was Allen, but uh, he he decided to make himself a little less Jewish sounding. And that was the way he would get ahead in at least his end of the business. Uh, so he, he invented himself from the name, you know, from the birth certificate onward. He also was a little bit, uh, let's say, OCD. Uh, and there, there are stories about that in here, too, which was what made him a great producer. Could you elaborate a little bit on his OCD tendencies? Well, I think this is, this is part of his anal compulsive personality. Uh, there's a story in the book where uh, uh, someone we both know... Um, went to lunch with him and they're starting the lunch and Irwin picks up the bread basket and offers my friend a roll. My friend takes it. And then the Irwin turns to the waiter and said, we'd like another basket of bread, please. Irwin wouldn't touch a basket where somebody else had had his hand. He was a real, he was a real germaphobe, would not shake hands with anybody. Or if anybody did touch him, he'd run off to the bathroom and wash himself with soap. And I think this, this kind of compulsiveness and attention to various details and fear of the unknown is what probably inspired him to make the film so safe and the film sets so incredibly safe. They also had one of the greatest uh, stunt coordinators of all time, Paul Stater, who looked after everybody too and you know wouldn't let any stunt people do anything that he himself wouldn't do. So it's a, a real good team that, that Irwin Allen maintained for all those pictures. Now, Irwin Allen was known for using a lot of the uh, same crew cast of that nature, especially the behind-the-scenes personnel, shall we say. Yeah, he worked for you. There's also a guy named Gale, uh, Al Gale, who was a cousin, who he uh, kind of brought along with him on a lot of the writing assignments. Uh, yeah, it, it was a family. I mean, all the big producers liked to work with the same people because it cut right to the chase. You didn't have to break new people in. Interestingly enough, Erwin Allen worked with Ernest Orsatti, who was a press agent uh, early in his career, and then later on would hire Ernie Orsatti, his son, who would become a very famous stunt person in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Er Ernie's father was, well, among other things, er Ernie's father was a major league ball player. <laughs> so that's part of it. But he also, uh, yeah, he, he did stunts. I mean, it's amazing. There's been rumors for years that there was going to be a sequel to The Towering Inferno. Um, there was even maybe mention of it from Irwin Allen during a press release or something. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I heard nothing about that. Certainly Sterling Silliphant would have been the one hired to write it, and he never... I, I Believe me, I went through all of his files. There was nothing of that nature in there. Um, and in fact, McQueen kind of screwed Irwin um, 
the deal, both Steve McQueen and Paul Newman got a million dollars each to appear in the Towering Inferno, which was an extraordinary salary, but it was a two-picture deal. And Paul Newman cashed in his chip and made the second picture, a terrible, terrible movie about a volcano called When Time Ran Out. And McQueen never did. McQueen stiffed Allen and didn't make another picture for him. Of course, after that, he, he became ill. But, uh, you know, different, uh, different people, different strokes, I guess. So uh, that, that might have been a sequel. Because don't forget, McQueen and Newman both lived. But, you know, once you burn down the world's tallest building, you know, what do you do, a forest fire? Well, I, I didn't find that information, but it's okay. Again, he, it might have been in his archive somewhere, but I didn't have privileged access to that extent. Well, he, he, also, he did announce he was going to do a, a, a circus picture, and he was going to do it in 3D without glasses, which everybody pretty much dismissed uh, correctly. Uh, that was a while ago. That was 75, I heard about that. He always wanted to direct his own picture and have a sole directing credit. And he finally got his chance in 1978 after a, a couple of television films he produced, uh, Fire and Flood. And then in 78, he went on to direct his sole directorial credit for The Swarm, which was received with not-so-positive results. Yeah, that was a shame. Well, you know, as, as a, again, as Sterling, who wrote The Swarm, embarrassingly said uh, Irwin stayed too long at the fair he really didn't understand because he was not a very good director that was the whole thing in fact he wanted very much to direct the Poseidon adventure and they wouldn't let him because he simply wasn't a strong enough director even though he was a very good producer so they brought in Ronald Neem and he was very disappointed at that and also at the uh, at not being able to direct all of the towering inferno but he did direct in a sense second unit the action sequences. John Gillerman did, in fact, direct the actors. And that's what, that's what Susie Blakely, who was uh, kind enough to speak to me for the book. She played the ingenue, um, William Holden's daughter. She uh, said that her, her most of her scenes were with John Gillerman, except for a few of the action sequences with Erwin Allen. He made one last attempt at directing in 1980 with uh, the infamous Volcano film, When Time Ran Out. Uh, you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. It's it was a real shame, and you know, the embarrassing thing was that Sterling wrote both. Actually, Sterling and uh, Edward Anholt wrote um, when time ran out. Two Academy Award-winning screenwriters turning out that unfortunate film. Uh, but that's listen. You'll you'll read about it in the book and and the sadness. And I have you know Sterling talking about it. It's just listen. It happens. Not everything can be a hit, but. When you have a formula down and then you've topped yourself, it's the same problem David O. Selznick had after Gone with the Wind. He said, no matter what I do after this, my obituary is going to read David O. Selznick, producer of Gone with the Wind. And in fact, that's what it did say. And Urban Allen, again, he lived for several years after we'd done those two mega hits, Poseidon and Inferno. And he could never top himself, but he kept trying, and that's the sad part. Now, he did produce a couple of television films after that. I think The Night the Bridge Fell Down, and then there was an Alice in Wonderland remake or something with an all-star cast yeah he, he had deals all over town he had to deal with each of the three major networks then after towering inferno and he was supposed to make a film for each of them so i think what you're reading is the credits of what happened after that yeah the alice in wonderland television film was pretty well received and got pretty good ratings from what i recall mm -hmm. he was very proud of that yeah yeah could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming book on the exorcist and how it differs from other books that have been written about the exorcist because there's been quite a few of them in, um, oh, probably the last 10, 15 years, I would say. Is that my opportunity, or are we going to go to a commercial? <laughs> I don't have a real lecture planned on the Exorcist book, except that I was, and here we go back to publicity again, I was a theater publicist in 1973 in Boston when the Exorcist 
opened. And because Boston is in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts in those days still had blue laws, uh, I and my vice president and the other vice president, we were all indicted for, and let me get the billing right, obscenity, blasphemy, and corrupting the morals of a minor because we had shown the exorcist. There was a crazy religious nut named Rita Warren who lived in Brockton, Massachusetts, and she said we had hurt her daughter because her daughter uh, saw the movie. Now, nobody ever considered putting Rita Warren in jail for bringing her young daughter to see an R-rated film, but she was one of these, you know, uber-Christian types, and uh, she brought suit against us. Um, however, the, the, the judge simply heard what was going on and realized that she was a nut, and uh, threw out the case, as it turned out on the first day of Lent, which was very nice and poetic. Um, but in, in the course of the whole thing, William Friedkin called up to give us his support. And so when he came through town a few weeks later in January to do some lecture tours in central Massachusetts, I went out there and, and met him. And um, we've been friends ever since. And of course, it was his permission that got me my first book deal years ago to write his biography, which was very brave of him. So I've been following The Exorcist literally since the day before it opened, when we had a secret screening. And um, I thought it was about time to go writing all the stories I knew. So I was friends with William Peter Blatty. I have lots of interviews and material from him. I, of course, interviewed Billy up the wazoo for my biography of him called Hurricane Billy. And over the years, I've managed to speak to a number of people about the book. But when I got the contract to do this book from Kensington Citadel Publishers, most of the people were dead. And so I was able to find people who'd work with those people. Some of the wonderful discoveries were I finally, after years, got a chance to interview Ellen Burstyn, who I happen to believe is our finest American actress of her generation. And she was so sweet and so helpful that I couldn't complain at all. I spoke to a man named Craig McKay, who was the assistant editor on the film. Everybody else is gone. Um, Terry Donnelly, who was the production manager and the first assistant director on the film, is an old friend of mine, and he was able to fill me in on some things. And so I was able to tell a lot of stories about the making of the original Exorcist that have never been out before, and also to try to triangulate some of the legends that have appeared over the years, and as people's stories have changed since the film was just at first a hit, and then it became a legend. And I was preferring to go back to when it was just a hit. There was that. Then there was the debacle of The Heretic, Exorcist II, which I write about. Then there was the two different versions of Legion, otherwise known as Exorcist III, that William Peter Blatty wrote and directed. That was a roller coaster ride. And after that, there were, of course, two prequels, one by Paul Schrader and the other by Rennie Harlan. And then there was a television series. And now, of course, we're preparing for the October release of David Gordon Green's rebooted Exorcist. And I'm, I'm hoping that will be good, but I wasn't able to see it, of course, because we had a huge deadline. So this is my, my long way of saying it's about all of the exercise, and I hope it does well. The publisher was originally going to bring it out in October. Then they read the manuscript, and they decided they should bring it out in September. Then they edited the manuscript and figured they should bring it out in August. And the latest I heard is they're bringing it out in July, and they're taking advance orders on Amazon because they think it's going to be a hit. And after 30 books... I need a hit. Well, I think this may be the hit you're looking for. There's certainly a demand for it, I would say. Well, thank you. Well, from your mouth to Pazuzu's ears. Thanks so much. <laughs> and, of course, the fact that there's a new Exorcist film coming in the fall, that's not going to hurt sales, I wouldn't think. Yes, yes. And, and Mike Blatty, Bill's oldest son, just said today that Linda Blair is going to be in the film, too. He, 
he wouldn't reveal how he learned, but uh, that's that's nice. So, she, you know, she's she's uh, you know she she does work uh, charity work rescuing animals, and that's just so wonderful. So I'm happy that I hope, I hope she gets a, a, a huge payday and she can run her charity again. She's really sweet. Tell us about the other two books you have coming out later in the year. Oh, God. I've been typing all year, yeah. The, 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 the one coming out in August is, is called uh, Breaking the Code, and it's about Otto Preminger versus Hollywood censors. And that is set around his film from 1954, I think it was, or maybe 56. I'm getting vague now. The Moon is Blue which was refused a code seal. That is, the censors came down on it because they used the word virgin. And that shows you how long ago it was. Well, Otto had had a tempestuous relationship with the code over four or five films. And this is a book, the first half of it is about Otto's relationship with the code and how, in a sense, he broke the production code by just gnawing at them, nibbled to death by ducks, so to speak, until the code finally was revised in 1968 by Jack Valenti. The other half of the book is a play that was written by my writing partner, Arnie Reisman. We were both on Says You, if you need to know who Arnie Reisman was, the NPR game show, called Code Blue, which is a comedy about Otto Preminger and Joe Breen, who ran the production code all over the movie Code Blue. And a lot of it is drawn from notes, internal correspondence of the MPAA, and uh, what happened to liberate that film. So that'll be out from Applause Books, in August, for those of you taking notes, it's called Breaking the Code, and it's uh, I, I'm very happy with it. It's not, it's not a big book, but it's a very good book, I think. The one that's coming out in late November uh, is is called um, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface, and it's about both Scarfaces, the one that Howard Hawks made in 1932 and the one that Brian De Palma made, which I think everybody knows about now from 1983. And it's going back and forth in time, and it talks about the making of both of those films and their impact on society more than anything else. And I'm very proud to say that book has a foreword written by Stephen Bauer, who plays Al Pacino's sidekick, Manny, in the remake of Scarface. And he's a sweetheart of a guy, so he was uh, very helpful throughout. And he's, he's, he's written the foreword, which is a wonderful, heartfelt thing for him to do. So I think we have a, I think we have a leg up there, too, on Scarface. Well, we certainly appreciate the great work you're doing. Always looking forward to the books that you're putting out there. Uh, you're doing the Lord's work, as the old saying goes, and so we really appreci appreciate everything that you do. Thank you. Generations, you know, used to be 20 years. Now they're probably seven or eight years. And human civilization, although a lot of it is moving backward, a great deal of it moves, especially the social media and, and the arts, move forward so quickly that it's difficult for young audiences today to understand what happened 10 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. And so it's important to set these things in context. Yeah, I, I, I think it's unavoidable, but I, I keep on quoting Bill Butler, who was the great director of photography. We were talking years ago, and he said, yeah, kids today think that film history began with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, it's odd these days. Not only are films being forgotten, but music is as well. It's amazing how the younger generation doesn't seem to be interested in any music that occurred before they were born. Uh, I wasn't like that. I was always curious about things that came before I did, and that went with not only films, but music as well. I heard it said when I was doing radio work that you can only go back two generations in music. Most, most people only like two generations back. 
uh, and I don't know how many generations ahead they can they can live into. But I mean, I was raised on on what they call standards. You know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Patty Page, uh, people like that. But that those are those are like Neanderthal right now. They're, if you can say about music being in black and white, it's so old that people don't even regard it. But that was the beginning of of my music, and then of course came rock and roll and and rock. Um, but it's very hard for my ears to adjust to new music. Well, this is by the way part of what happened with Scarface. You know, the people who made the movie were so old they didn't understand the audience that really wanted Scarface. They were making it for a kind of adventurous young audience. They didn't realize that the hip hop community were the ones who would really dig Scarface, and they were taken by surprise. Surprised when it was embraced by the hip-hoppers. And, of course, they, they cashed the checks. And the, the movie has great resonance with people. But the people who made the film really weren't aware of that. And that's part of the story of its success. Yeah, regarding Scarface, it's interesting. And, and we were talking about music as well. There was actually talk about them actually taking out the Giorgio Moroder soundtrack and replacing it with modern-day hip-hop. Uh, that would have been an interesting concept. Maybe not... In a good way. Well, there, there are still enough people sampling the score and doing their own. I mean, there's even a rapper by the name of Scarface. He changed his name. And, of course, a lot of the groups, you know, Jay-Z and others, um, really embrace the movie and are doing their own riffs on it, which, again, shows it's a living piece of art. And I think it's terrific that they're reinterpreting it. Yes, yeah, Scarface was definitely a film that had to have time to uh, marinate, shall we say, uh, for a while. It, it truly was ahead of its time because it, its time took about 10 years uh, to really bleed into the rest of society, and uh, it's now established as a, a classic. And a lot of people who, who uh, wrote it off or who wrote negative things about it when it came out in 83 and 84, uh, you know, slowly have to realize that they were behind the curve. The audiences embraced it. Now, that's the great thing. When an audience embraces a movie, even if the critics don't understand it, that's a real hit. There, there's a wonderful quote from John Frankenheimer, who was talking about the movie Seconds, but it applies to so many other movies. He said, yeah, this is a film that went from being a flop to being a classic without ever being a hit. Well, it's been great having you on again to talk about your current book and your upcoming books. And uh, we're always excited about what you're involved in and we'll be looking forward to what you've got coming in the future. Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. And just remember, not only do I have a website, www.natsegaloff.com, that I think I have to update, frankly, but I'm also all over Amazon and all over Bear Manor Media. Just Google me and you'll find something worth reading. And a great shout out to Movie Geeks United and thank you so much for having me on again. 